Welcome to Profiles. I'm Karen Hansen, Provost of the Indiana University Bloomington campus, and it's our pleasure today to have as our guest on Profiles, Eleanor Ostrom, the Arthur F. Bentley Distinguished Professor of Political Science and a Distinguished Professor of the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. This year, Lynn Ostrom won the Nobel Prize in Economics. She's been awarded seven honorary degrees. She's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the American Philosophical Society, and she's won a slew of other honors and awards. Lynn, you have a stellar career. How did it begin? You came to IU directly out of graduate school. Could you tell us a little bit about your early education and why you took the interests you did in political science? Uh, Well, it's a complicated story. My family uh, was very, very poor. Uh, I grew up during the Depression. I never dreamed I was going to college. And my mother had only high school, so there was no encouragement whatsoever of going to college. But fortunately, in my high school, 90 percent went to college, so all my friends were going, so what do you do? I had been on a swimming team and had learned how to teach swimming and could make some extra money uh, doing that and working in a dime store and uh, gluing in things at the library and, you know, everything that I could find. And so I was able to go to UCLA and put myself through. When I entered, I didn't have an idea of a major and they put me in education because um, women – who graduated from college might be able to teach secondary school or grammar school, but no other kind of job opportunity. Then uh, my very first semester, I had an uh, introduction to political science uh, as one of my courses that they had recommended, and the TA was just great. And I got very excited about the subject and decided this was fun, so I transferred from education into political science. Then I took a lot of economics as an undergraduate as well, read economics um, 1A uh, for three semesters uh, before I graduated. So I had really a dual major. Then went into business, came back to UCLA, uh, worked in personnel, public personnel for university and thought it would be fun to get a master's professionally. And then I found it was fun. I asked to apply, which is pretty controversial. Again, uh, women didn't go to PhDs and there was a big controversy in the Department of Political Science at UCLA when they admitted me and a couple of others, but we won't go back over all of that. You mentioned a terrific TA but also various barriers, particularly because of your your gender. Were there other people who were particularly encouraging or discouraging uh, as you as you found your way through this educational path? Yes. There were a number of faculty uh, from multiple disciplines that were encouraging. Uh, Jack Hirschleifer was on my PhD committee and very, very encouraging. But – it was a bit of a struggle. Fortunately, I was assigned a um, place to study for a seminar and it turned out to be a groundwater basin half an hour or 40 minutes away from campus and I got very interested in what they were doing and the history and all the rest and so I never had to apply for a grant to get my field work. On top of that, 
they solved a very, very tough problem and I didn't realize I was studying a common pool resource and I didn't realize that they weren't supposed to be able to do what they did. So I had the advantage of interacting with people, going through their archival materials. Uh, if you're really interested in history and how something evolves, to be able to go in and see all the correspondence, they just said, here's the filing cabinets. You can read anything and then if you need a copy, if there's a spare yellow copy, you know, in those days, carbon copy, take it or you can make a Xerox. Imagine how open that was and what an unbelievable opportunity. So I had the good fortune of a wonderful dissertation topic and very, very exciting work and wonderful people. They uh, – many of the public officials and uh, locals were – able to read parts of the dissertation. One of the persons who had been involved in organizing retired and he read the entire thing. So I got wonderful, wonderful help and that was part of the inspiration for moving forward. Well, that's an interesting um, account particularly of the topic which ended up being a local topic and a common resource topic given the, the rest of your career. Can you say a little bit more about what that dissertation topic was? I, I understood it had to do with the, the L.A. Basin, the very place yes. that you were. Well, uh, in Los Angeles, underneath the city were a series of groundwater basins and a lot of the early water, we are semi-arid, uh, 8 to 12 inches of rain a year. I couldn't believe it when I first moved <laughs> Indiana. It's all our rainfall. I was born and raised in L.A. In the 20s and 30s, people started really pumping water out of that groundwater basin and it was going down, down, down. Well, next to the ocean, the salt water comes in and threatens the entire basin. Well, they didn't even know the boundaries. So figuring out where you know what's going on underneath us is a big challenge. They got USGS uh, to do a study, which they partly paid for. That finally got their boundaries. There were eleven cities or part of cities that were in the overarching area, part of a county. Uh, lots of private. So the number of people who were then involved was very very difficult, and they were pumping away like mad, and they knew they had to stop. But finding a way to do that was very, very challenging. So you you had both a a local interest in this yourself as an inhabitant, and it was a, a, an instance in which you worked with a lot of people, and there was a, there was open collaboration. When you moved to Rainier, Indiana, can you say a little bit about uh, what the work conditions were like here? I'm I'm leading up to the founding of the workshop, but what was it like when you first arrived? Well, I obviously didn't have a job in 1965, and we won't go into my first semester of teaching political science at Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday at 7.30 in the morning. We'll just uh, sweep right by that. I then became graduate advisor because of Vietnam War and Byron Carter, uh, who became chancellor, uh, and, and I had to replace Byron as graduate advisor. I was given a year-long seminar in the 1970-71 era as uh, a little bit of an award for having pitched in uh, doing all sorts of administrative things. And with the graduate students, I stressed in the fall, let's really figure out how people have measured public goods and common pool resources and what's the empirical research and theoretical research. Because by then, 
uh, Garrett Hardin's article is well known in uh, Mansur Olson's book and others and they're saying it's impossible and I had seen this. But I did not want to study water. I said we can study anything but water. I spent all of this. I'm not that I hated it. I just didn't think you want to spend your whole life on it. Well, the graduate students included Roger Parks who uh, became a faculty member at SVIA, chose policing and public safety. And Roger lived at that point in Indianapolis and came up with a fantastic way of doing a research design that we could study three independent communities in Marion County, uh, matched to neighborhoods right next to Beach Grove, Speedway and Lawrence uh, that were very similar. And that gave us a research design where you could do a citizen survey and do very careful work and then ride in police cars and really get a sense of the difference. I then had an honors seminar in the spring and as they started to enroll in January, they kept saying, can't we do something different? And so I said, well, would you like to engage yourself in research? And oh, that'd be great. So the graduate students and the undergraduate students, including Jane Pauley, by the way, worked through and we pre-tested and pre-tested. In fact, we did – the way we pre-tested the survey was um, in local uh, wishy-washies. If somebody has put laundry into a laundromat and they're just sitting there, you can say, uh, sir, we're conducting a survey uh, in a, another month uh, and we need to pre-test it. And there's some questions. If you could give us an answer, it would uh, help us greatly and then tell us if the questions were well phrased, et cetera, so that it gave us a way of pre-testing, pre-testing, pre-testing. So when we actually did the survey, it was very well designed and the students and graduate students uh, did the survey. Uh, so they got wonderful experience and it then enabled me to uh, start searching for funding. Eventually, I did uh, a survey in black communities in Chicago because, again, the students on the campus came to me and said, Professor Ostrom, why are you doing this study in whitey communities? It's really important in the black community. And so I said, fine. Can you tell me some independent black communities within fairly even area, half an hour to three hours from here? They said, yes, Chicago. And they went up and they, at my insistence, talked with the officials uh, to see if they were interested and they were. So I taught a seminar in the Afro-American Studies program that fall and we did the studies there. And then because of that success, I was able to get my first NSF grant and yet as we were getting more funding in, I was getting questions back about, well, what's the enterprise doing this? And we knew that we needed to be developing something. We had had a seminar going across economics and political science for some time and Vincent got the idea that, well, let's create it as the workshop in political theory and policy analysis. That's a long story. Sorry. It's an interesting story. Uh, so, so in 1973, uh, you co-founded with, with your husband, Vincent Ostrom, the, the workshop in political theory and policy analysis. And could you say a little bit about why you and Vincent chose the, the, the name workshop? I mean, it might have been the seminar or the center or the consortium, but workshop has a slightly different connotation. Could you say a little bit about its meaning sure. and its aims? Vincent chose the name and it was very <laughs> self-conscious. One, 
Um, he was working on federalism and multiple centers and was anti-the center. <laughs> so he didn't want to found a center. <laughs> Two, we'd had the good fortune of working with Paul Goodman who is a very fine uh, carpenter and, and cabinet maker and he had a wonderful shop on 10th Street and we spent Thursday evening and all day Saturday with Paul for years making the furniture in our home. Um, we love walnut and cherry and all these wonderful woods. You can get tulip poplar and others. And we hadn't been able to find furniture that we liked and someone suggested we go and, and see if we could get Paul to make something. Well, when we asked Paul, his reaction was, well, if you'll come and work with me, I'll do it. But I've had some IU faculty who have asked me to make something and then after I've made it, they bargain with me over the price and I don't want to do that again. So we became his colleagues and we learned so much from working with an artisan, a real artisan, that Vincent wrote a paper on artisanship and artifact and looking at institutions as artifacts that came from very good work of artisans. And so that's the underlying philosophy of the workshop, that it is a group of junior and senior people working together and uh, designing research, thinking through theory. Tocqueville has been a very, very important person uh, in Vincent's writing and we've had Tocqueville right up on the wall watching us all the time. <laughs> I was about to say that it was a lovely metaphor, but it really it's meant literally, and it's it's a it's a lovely conception. Yes, uh, it really was, and and we don't have a hierarchy. Yes, there are certain people who have to sign forms and things like that, but it is very self organizing. And people have asked me at times, how have I ever dealt with the load of the workshop? And my reaction is, that's not a load. Hmm. We have staff like Patty Lazote, who's been with us thirty three years now. And many of our staff have been with us for a long time. They know what they're doing. Uh, I listen to them. And now, of course, Mike McGinnis and Jimmy Walker are doing a fabulous job. It speaks volumes about the workshop that people have been committed to it for so long and people from so many disciplines and departments mm -hmm. and schools. Could you, could you say a little bit about that? I mean, is it interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary? How do you see the disciplinary landscape? Well, I like trans better than inner. I, I don't have a strong sense of this. The origin was political science and economics and Scott Gordon and um, Herb Kiesling and a number of colleagues that were around in the early 70s were very, very involved. But uh, SPIA has been a very, very important contributor. Anthropology, not as much history, but sometimes we've had some colleagues on campus. Now geography with Tom Evans and some of their work sometimes uh, some of the folks in biology. So it's been college and SPIA and law school. So the institutional aspects have been important for colleagues in both the IU law and in Indianapolis. And then we have visiting scholars that come from all over the world and they come from a full array of disciplines. They are not any one single discipline or any one single continent. So that has added 
to uh, the ideas uh, that are being generated and put on the table. And that happened as a result of Vincent and I spending time in Germany at SIF, which is a center of, of interdisciplinary uh, research where Reinhard Selton was at one, the first time and a uh, very important influence on my life. And there they bring in people for six months to a year, all post-PhD. And Vincent's reaction was, well, they're much more open and we'd frankly had some difficulty having enough PhD students from political science to make our seminars because they were interdisciplinary. And uh, the early emphasis of getting your exams ready for your PhD exam kind of blocked an interest in this broad. Well, with visiting scholars, one that brought us more around the table and two – they taught some of the graduate students and the graduate students taught them because the graduate students are very fresh on some new methods and that interaction became very powerful. And uh, then over time, slowly but surely, we got more and more students wanting to apply and of recent times, we've had to turn students away. <laughs> well, you're, you're a legendary mentor and, and collaborator and and everyone speaks about your your generosity and your and your energy and the intellectual drive you bring to to um, the problems that you study and the way in which you work with students but you've just now spoken about the interactions in both directions could you say a little bit more about your understanding of the role of of faculty with students in settings such as this well i look at it as an interactive process I have written uh, on my own. Um, governing the Commons was something I did on a sabbatical, which was a big struggle. I have a very major book in 2005. The most recent book uh, was collaborative with Amy Poteet and Marco Jensen, and they were both here at different times as postdocs. And Marco is an applied mathematician whose background is across mathematics, formal modeling, ecology, etc. Amy is a political scientist uh, but uh, someone who does in-depth case studies in Africa. <laughs> so she and I were able to bring things together. So that book's title I think says a lot. The title is Working Together. And we were trying to talk about how methods work together to study collective action and the commons but if you're going to do multiple methods like in-depth single case studies like my dissertation and some of Amy's, meta-analysis of other people's case studies, large-end studies, experimental lab, which is wonderful here at IU, um, mathematical theory, etc., that has to be collaborative with people having – bringing different skills. Uh, we use a lot of GIS now and remote sensing. I can't do that. So either I work with a postdoc or a PhD student or with Tom Evans and then they bring their skills. I bring some of the questions and we learn how to explore questions together. I've just finished writing a paper with Michael Cox, one of our just recent PhDs and he did a fantastic study of the 60 acequias uh, who originally came with Spanish farmers as a way of organizing irrigation. So the name of an irrigation unit was acequia. 
they brought the idea with them from eastern Spain to Mexico. We then had a war and they ended up in New Mexico. Uh, they have existed to over 200 years and he has done this incredible study of uh, the patterns over time using remote sensing, using network theory, doing in-depth interviews, etc. And uh, I've been working on a framework and the two have just put my framework with what he's been doing in terms of how do they balance one another and help and then how do we revise my work, <laughs> how to make it better. And he's he's raising questions of, well, now maybe the next step to improve would be this or this or this and we kept going back and forth and he had ideas that I never thought of and so I find it exciting to have an experience like that where you're working with a young person and learning from them. The workshop um, has over the course of its history studied a lot of institutions and governance of, of a variety of sorts. It also exemplifies a, a mode of governance and it is itself an institution. Out of your, your work in that area and the, and the uh, structure you've created, do you have lessons that the rest of the university should take? I mean people often make um, complaints about the, the difficulty of crossing boundaries between schools or departments and collaborating with people they might otherwise want to collaborate with. Are, are there any lessons out of the workshop for the structure and governance of the university? Well, uh, not f at the big level but I have talked with people about how to start a seminar first and then we have a couple of rules that I think are pretty important for the way we run a seminar. This is a weekly colloquium, not, not the teaching seminar. We have an hour and a half. We tell the speaker that they will have 45 minutes max and we hold them to it so that there's good discussion. It is OK to interrupt and raise your hand and ask a clarifying question but not challenge. We've wanted that people could actually make it but if they're using a term from their discipline and someone else doesn't have a clue as to what it means, then a clarification question is very important for interdisciplinary work and letting that happen early. And slowly but surely, most participants have a good understanding. Sometimes we have a debate, was that clarification or challenge? But <laughs> But that is one way that groups of colleagues from different disciplines can begin to see can they communicate and they might use it like, like that or like we – the other thing we do is we have working groups and the working groups can self-organize. They have to check with us on which room they use and what time. They then have to handle the email and correspondence among themselves but they can meet three to five people, maybe ten uh, and take a topic and try then to really discuss it with one another without having to worry about outsiders, etc., of, of getting to know. But they, they, most of our working groups are interdisciplinary. That's another way of doing these things so that those are not top-down. Their ways of building a intellectual community, and I think you have to do that. It's pretty hard to say, okay, now we want all you folks to do it interdisciplinarily. 
I will have some more clarificatory questions about about your research, um, but we have a piece of music that you've brought in. I'm talking with Lynn Ostrom, Nobel laureate, and Arthur F. Bentley, distinguished professor of political science at Indiana University. And we'll we'll uh, listen to this piece of music. What what have you chosen? Uh, well, I asked for uh, one of Joan Baez's early uh, recordings in the '60s. I used to listen to her all the time, and uh, I just think she's great. with Lynn Ostrom, Arthur F. Bentley, Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Nobel Laureate at Indiana University. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Lynn, you told us a little bit about some of your research, the doctoral work you did on the um, groundwater in L.A. Then when you came to Indiana, you worked almost locally on police organization in um, in Indianapolis. You've moved from local laboratories to, to global ones or you have work that's maybe local but all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, could you say a little bit more? You've done research on fisheries in North America, forest management in South America, uh, water irrigation in Nepal. Maybe begin with the work you did in, in Nepal. Could you say a little bit about uh, what you've done there in, empirically? Well, it goes back to a National Research Council uh, committee that I was on in the early 1980s after 15 years of doing research on policing uh, and eventually doing 80 metropolitan areas around the U.S., I thought we had learned what we could learn from our research program there. And I was not aware of the tremendous difficulty of accruing knowledge about irrigation and fisheries, etc. Until I joined this, I was asked to join a National Research Council on Common Property and Common Pool Resources. They brought together uh, a variety of folks who had done case studies and we began to realize that there were hundreds of case studies out there. But people were divided by discipline and sector and region. So people studying fisheries as political scientists in Africa didn't know what the sociologists were doing about fisheries in Africa, let alone what others were doing about water in Africa or trees. So we had three divisions. And 
we then tried to publish a number of things that would come from that uh, research and we did a meta-analysis here. I was then sent to Nepal by USAID to study their decentralization program and was fortunate to uh, meet several colleagues right away who had done extensive case study work in Nepal. And we realized that we could now do a meta-analysis of uh, at least one sector in one country and started that and found then that uh, there was missing data and we needed to, to complement the meta-analysis. So we uh, – I've been working with Nepali colleagues on and off for quite some time and we then were able to get funding to uh, go to Nepal and study individual uh, sites. Uh, we now have a database of over 250 irrigation systems and when you are at that size, you can start really doing statistical analysis. We also had the in-depth knowledge of a lot of the areas and what was going on in the field. So we were not just coming in and, and doing stats. We found some very interesting findings here. The farmers in Nepal frequently build irrigation systems. But when you look at them, they're, they're pretty engineeringly primitive. They've had to take local stones and do some lining and get headworks. But they have a rainfall during the monsoon season that is just unbelievable for us. Uh, if you go down to some of the rivers, you'll see automobiles and big tree logs, et cetera, being swept away. And these farmer-managed systems were doing better than the systems that USAID and Asian Development Bank and others were building, costing millions of dollars and trying to understand why and how. So we've been working on theory, trying to get at what is it the farmers are doing, how do they solve these problems, et cetera. And then again, going back to this problem of collective action, how do you study it in a way that you can begin to accumulate a better theory? The work you've done on the commons is something I'd like to focus on uh, in, in some detail. In part, your, your work um, is, is a kind of corrective or response to some of the work of Garrett Hardin mm -hmm. and, and he has – And economists more generally. Yes. Actually, I'd like to ask about both of those things. Could you describe for our listeners uh, Hardin's so-called tragedy of the commons, what he the, – the very He wrote a article. beautiful article – in the sense of being able to read it and think about it and challenge. It was uh, an uh, inspiration. He is partly correct. When people have access to a fishery or a lake or a pasture um, and his example was a pasture and there are no rules and they don't know one another and they're anonymous, everyone has the temptation to put as many cows on or take as many fish out as they possibly can. And if they all do that, they can destroy the commons. Uh, by the way, when we have put that into the experimental lab, uh, which we've done, and people can't communicate, we sustain that theory. So anonymous, non-communicating people over harvest. Now, in the lab, all we have to do is enable them to engage in face-to-face -face and they don't solve it to optimal, but they do much, much better. 
Anyway, that theory um, has captivated a very large audience. There are many students in environmental programs in the U.S. that read it three or four times in their undergraduate program. And a great deal of our public policy is based on it because he came up and said, well, the only thing you do is impose government or private property, but impose from the outside. So that then presumes that the users are totally helpless and that's been the presumption. So people who had for 500 to 1,000 years managed resources, they took the resources away and this was considered the right thing to do. Well, now a lot of evidence shows that things got worse, not better. That doesn't mean that every inshore fishery group or irrigation or lake or pasture or forest has been sustained. Fisheries are particularly difficult, but there are inshore fisheries that have been self-organized and if they don't lose their authority to be self-managed, those are sustainable frequently over a long time. This was so simple. Aha. They can't do it. So what do we do? We come in from the outside. But now we have to really seriously understand that sometimes uh, they do very well and then how can policy enhance capabilities at a local or regional scale rather than take it away from them? You're using a, a wonderful combination of both theory and empirical research well, in, in, we should. In, in making these policy recommendations. Did this begin with a kind of questioning of some of the assumptions that might lie behind both Hardin in particular but economists more generally, some of the views about self-interest or uh, rationality in human nature? Are there views of human beings that – you might have questioned in beginning to think about new ways of understanding the commons? At some level, but I am a firm believer in economic theory in that area where it was best developed. So uh, I was a student of Armin Alchin at a very early uh, juncture and uh, he has written a fantastic article in the 50s that the theory for markets works – And the whole idea is at equilibrium, if you want to model whoever survived at equilibrium, you better model them as profit maximizers. In it, he has some very nice things. They might have been flipping a coin or doing this however, but they happen to choose the profit maximization. So it's a very good assumption if you're going to do a theory about rice, corn and other private goods. And so let's not destroy a body of theory Uh, that does actually work. Mm -hmm. I have been struggling with behavioral theories and there are many other economists who are also struggling with the development of a behavioral theory. And going back – by the way, Herbert Simon is considered by some a political scientist. He is a – taught public administration so it's uh, kind of controversial but I I consider him a political scientist. And Herbert Simon's work is very important for me. And Simon had a sense that humans in settings other than a highly competitive market are boundedly rational. They would like to do well, broadly defined, but they don't have full information. So they have to learn about the setting. In some settings, it's easier to learn than others. And in some settings, norms of reciprocity and trust 
are very important and not others. So, so again, go back to the lab. We bring people in. They don't know who they're playing with, et cetera. They're anonymous. They have no norms in that setting. They just be as competitive as they possibly can. But give them a chance to talk and begin to get some sense of who else they're relating and their own, their norms of finding cooperative solutions come to the fore and begin to take important role in making decisions. So context makes a huge difference. But there was a time where people would just say that as a way of putting aside any theoretical work. Mm-hmm. And I don't do that. Our job is how do we understand what aspects of context make a difference. That's why we keep going back from theory to testing it in the lab, uh, in the field, in agent-based models, trying to get a better – it's so complex that you can't just have a nice little simple mathematical model. But sometimes we can model it. Among the contextual things that I'm sure you've, you've uh, looked at presumably would be the size of the group as, as communication is so crucial to the accounts you're giving. Um, could you say a little bit about how the size of the population works for, for some of these questions? Yeah. In some cases, uh, it actually takes a large group to succeed. Uh, one of my colleagues has done work on forestry and we found it to be the case that when the forest is large – and you're a very small group, you can agree your transaction costs are low, but you don't have the manpower or person power to actually monitor and get around and do the rest. So it is the size of the group related to the size of the resource that we have to be thinking about and whether or not there's a history of agreements and transaction costs are somewhat low. Uh, if uh, a great deal of the theory in the books is talking about that as the size of the group grows, transaction costs grow. And that's the case holding a group constant. But if you are also varying the history of groups, some groups have had all sorts of challenges in the past and have learned how to work together and uh, their transaction costs are somewhat lower. So we've got size of group. We have resource. We have leadership style. Uh, are there leaders who are problem solvers, who know how to listen? Is there knowledge uh, available about what is going on? Some resource systems, by the way, have physical behavior that is almost at the level of mathematical chaos. So some fisheries are very predictable. And then you can figure out if we do this, this is likely to happen and you can plan. But for some fisheries, the interactions among the species are such that it approaches mathematical chaos. Then you can't come to an agreement about if we did this three years ago, we overharvested and X occurred. Well, you can't be sure that it's your action that caused it because the fishery is so complex. And so very complex resource systems are much more difficult for people to manage from afar as well as locally. So we've been working on – there's a framework that we've been working on uh, trying to lay out the multiplicity of variables about the resource system, the resource units, the governance system and the users and how those fit together to make some systems much more functional than others. 
Well, clearly there are many, many technical questions at stake here. Hardin famously suggested that the problem of the commons was a moral question as well as a, as well as a technical question. I've heard you on a number of occasions urging sustainable practices. Do, do you see this as a moral matter as well as a technical one? Yes, I think humans can adopt norms and uh, that's what when we're parents we teach and in the university we certainly teach norms related to ethical practices in our research and that is both scientific ethical as well as the way you design your instruments and how you relate to people and we consider that appropriate. I think teaching that we have a moral responsibility for some of the externalities that we create and trying to find ways of reducing those is appropriate. Yes. Do you want to say anything about the uh, the role of communication in other venues where, where something like governance is at stake? There are a lot of complaints about the lack of civility in uh, American politics today. I don't know whether this is a commons issue or not. but oh, uh, It is. This goes back to Vincent's work in Tocqueville. We have eliminated a lot of local governance in the United States and then complain when kids get into violence in high school and when people don't know how to engage in a serious, long-standing debate. Let's go back to uh, when we had 110,000 school districts, which isn't that far back. And when we had 110,000 school districts, we had something like 700,000 people were on school boards at any one time. And that meant 700,000 people were learning about public budgeting, uh, the challenges of keeping a building up, the challenges of uh, how do you get chemistry taught as well as music, as well as art. Organizing a school district, there's a lot of problematic aspects. And governance isn't just a snap. And citizens do need to understand that and need to know how to listen to one another and how to raise issues. And when we had that many school districts and that many small cities, that was a part of everyday life. Uh, Vincent uh, grew up on a farm in the state of Washington and dinner time was – or mealtime was a time for discussing local politics and what was going on and they were a member of a co-op and there were challenges in how the co-op was organized, etc. Well, now people watch television a massive amount of the time and there aren't the home discussions about local and there's not as much participation. I'm very worried about democracy in the U.S. and in other parts of the developed world where we have seen that democracy was voting. If that's all democracy is, then uh, making the argument that democracy is the best form of government is trivial. Well, thank you, Lynn Ostrom, the Arthur F. Bentley Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Distinguished Professor of the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. And we're very grateful that you shared your thoughts with us today on Profiles. Thank you. The program you just heard was recorded in May of 2010. The studio engineer and technical producer was Michael Paskash. Production support for Profiles comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922, with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. 
information at smithville.net. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. Christina Kuzmich, executive producer. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.